Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Control All Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path in Asia. If you don't know me already, I'm a two-time career switcher and pivoted from BlackRock to fashion startup to now career change coach, where I help high achievers unhappy with their perfect on paper job, find direction in their career and pivot into a perfect for you career. So if this sounds like you and you're looking for some help, send me a message. All right, in today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Benjamin Wong, the co-founder and CEO of Kenobi. If you're not already familiar, Kenobi is an education tech startup focused on helping university students find jobs. Ben actually has a super fascinating career journey. He actually dropped out of law school, pivoted into finance, and spent time working in private equity and family offices before pivoting once more into entrepreneurship. So what was the thinking behind each pivot and why did Ben decide to leave behind a lucrative, prestigious finance career, uproot his life from Singapore to Indonesia, all in order to build Kenobi? Well, I'll hand it over to him now to share his story. Uh, lovely to have you on the podcast today, Ben. Um, why don't we get started with you just giving us a bit of an introduction about who you are? Thanks, Jennifer. Hi, my name is Benjamin. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Kenobi. So I would say that I, by heart, by nature, I've always been someone who wanted to start my own company. I think uh, it's it's always been in, inside me. I've always started things since I was young. Um, I remember when I was in primary school, uh, there were only two boys in a choir in the school. And uh, yeah, you know, I've always wanted to really like not care about what people think, but just pursue things that I want to really do. Um, and I've gone on to actually start the various things as well. For example, in junior college, uh, we didn't have a public speaking club. I was, I was the president of debate society, but we didn't have a public speaking club. And we just went down straight to find the people to do it. Right from like finding the people, finding the resources, finding the money, finding the teachers to support us, it's been amazing. And I would say to date, the people that I hang out with the public speaking club are still friends today. Yeah, so I I think you know that's the amazing thing about starting things, right? So yeah, this is a bit a bit short thing about myself. Cool. So let's um maybe start from the beginning of your story. So I know you went to uh, SMU, so Singapore Management University. Um, mm. and what did you study? So in Singapore Management University, I started with my degree in economics. Um, I did well in my first year. And then I realized that I wanted to add a degree, which was law. Because I was a debater, right? And all good debaters all go into law. I didn't do as well in my A-levels. I didn't get there. So I was like, why not? I have another chance, right? Let's get into that. So I did my second year in law, which was a first year in some ways uh, in law. But second year in the total university education uh, it was great. I, I I did well in certain subjects. Uh, and then it hit to the internship portion. I was interning at Lee and Lee. And I and there I was, you know, I had great mentors. I had a partner that was relatively young, like 35, 36 partner. And then he was like, you know, asking me to write like letters of demand. And and I think there was one case that really just threw me off. It was about a real estate case where people were debating about um literally a hole in the wall. 
like a really big hole, right? Um, and they've been debating about this case in the courts and high courts for like a couple of like years, two to three years, and the judgment was like two hundred pages. And as I was doing analysis behind it, I was like, referencing the past cases, um, to support my case, right? And I was realizing that hey, you know, this is not it. I, I don't really enjoy the work. Um, but I, I, I was like so frustrated. I was like. You know, why not just get over it? You know, I just uh, it's like two hundred thousand in damages, but you know, let's just get over it. Let's you can make more new buildings, you know, in the future, and so on and so forth, right? So I think that that side of me just came out a lot, and I was like, I don't really want to deal with the past. Yeah, so that was where I realized that you know, law wasn't the kind of thing for me. Yeah, and I think I I sort of like went deeper in economics. Uh, that was where I realized that it was something I I fully enjoyed. Um, I think the beauty of economics is this: is that you really see and understand why things are like, you know, whether it's like big things like, you know, um, recessions or small things like human behavior. Why does, why, when you do, when you show an act of kindness where the person doesn't reply you or doesn't do certain things, economics does explain certain things of this. So, which is, which is very intriguing. And I, I think I, I've got quite a sort of good education from that, which is not very similar to what other people probably might do. But then, um, if I could say it's a liberal arts education, I, I hope that, you know, it's it's a liberal arts education that I got. Yeah, even though I, it wasn't exactly that, that term that I that I actually, you know, have in my degree. Got it, got it. Cool. So when you graduated with an economics degree and did you end up finishing the law degree as well? No, I dropped law in okay. just uh, after just, a year of studying. Okay. so mainly of the internship. Hmm. Got it. And I think that's a great way, right? I think internships is a great way to really test drive and see if that's the right career path for you. So I think that's awesome that you then didn't go and pursue law and become a lawyer and go down that path. Uh, but so I think that that's good that you learned um, and you realized that pretty early on in uh, in your life. So, you know, you, ma- you majored in economics, you graduated from school. At that point in time, what were you thinking in terms of uh, a job? Yeah, so... At the point of time when I was doing the law internship, I had an offer to be in private equity in a Japanese firm. And that was where I was open, you know, to the whole realm of private equity. And I think that that was amazing. Um, it wasn't really about, you know, the money or like uh, how much you get paid, but rather it's just about the amount of things that, you know, you could really do. Um, in the past, you know, when you're in school, you're just told that, you know, this is your degree, this is the thing that you're supposed to do, and then that's it, right? But in private equity, you you get to see, like, many things, like, ranging from various industries to various ways that you can finance a business and make something work, or, you know, how do you actually sort of, like, pump in capital, right, or, like, money in general to sort of, like, support the best ideas, and I, I think that was amazing, um, when I was at a Japanese firm, I, I did so many things. Uh, I was working on like various projects. I I think uh, one very interesting project that I was working on was actually being like the sort of economic development board, the EDB, for a province in Japan. So we were actually looking at the Gunmai province. And literally they said, okay, these are the things that we know we're really good at. And then uh, there is this uh, door. I can't remember the name of it, but then I, I can probably just do a Google search. It's the it's a door, a Daruma. It's a Daruma, D-A-R-U-M-A. Uh basically it's a hideous looking door. It's red in color. Uh you're supposed to color one eye or something like that in some ritual. Uh so to scare off evil spirits. Yeah, apparently they, they are the, the greatest, uh, you know, um sort of like producer of that. 
there was also a whiskey and, and thing that was actually produced there as well and a couple of other things. So what we were supposed to do was to sort of like um, not just finance certain of their projects, but to see how we can connect them with people here in Singapore. So my task was to really like get the whole exhibition up and running, book the hotels, um, connect the people and so on and so forth. And, and that was amazing because I I really had to really sell different things. And at the point of time, you asked me to sell this Dharma doll, I have no idea how to sell it. <laughs> and so literally, I I had to like go down and go to the restaurants and they all had that lucky fortune catch, right? And then uh, slowly, we, I was like asking them, how do you do this? Then they're like, um, you know, it's just part of a culture. People just buy it, right? But I was like, you know, in Singapore, why would anyone buy it? So I had to be creative. I had to like say that, why not you put the Dharma dolls in a, in a line, you know, like uh, maybe you have like five of them in one row and it becomes an art piece. Or like, you know, and sometimes I, I said that, you know, the tradition here, and if you want to open a Japanese F&B is that um, you want to have that because that is a symbol of uh, of home, right? So the, the real Japanese who go there, they are the main customers who bring in the Singaporeans to eat there would certify that this is a great Japanese place to eat. So you definitely need that thing there. So, so it was all these things that actually allowed me and made me creative and understanding the various businesses out there not just the traditional business that you see in Singapore. So that, that, was, that was pretty exciting. Um, I would say that, that that really like got me started into uh, this whole foray itself. That's awesome. So then you got kind of exposed to private equity via an internship, and then you decided that that was ultimately the career path you wanted to go into after you graduated? Yeah, so I think at the point of time, that kind of rule was exciting. Then I... I applied for Bearing Private Equity Asia. At that point in time, I didn't know that it was a big fun, right? So you just apply and then you go you go to interview. For me, my my, my philosophy is very simple. I I try not to think of the brand of the, of the company I'm going to. I like to think about the fact that, you know, I'm going to work with the person, right? So I, I need to enjoy and like the person. So that, that's really the basis. And when I interviewed with my associate, and, and I think she's director now, and uh, my ex-director, I just really got along with them. And I think there was one question they had asked of me. They asked me like, Ben, have you done any valuation before? And then I was like, yeah, I've done valuation for like, you know, uh, a Dharma doll business and <laughs> some bonsai plants and, and Kyoto. Yeah. And then they were like, oh, this is uh, very exciting, very interesting, but it has no relevance to what we're doing in real estate. So I was like, yeah, I guess. And then uh, he was like, what do you know about real estate? And I was like, okay, I, I kind of know like the shopping centers, right? That, that's about it, you know, like a bit of leasing and, and things like that. I don't know anything else. And they're like, um, okay, uh, what, what are you willing to do to actually really learn it? Then I think uh, what I really just said to them, it just made him click. I said, you know, I will, I'll just stick, I'll just talk to people, right? I'll ask people for the advice. And I think they, they haven't heard this, this thing before. Because most people, they will just say that you're just study and so on. But Actually, especially so in, in the working world, it's about talking to people, right? The, before it gets written down in a Cushman and Wickfield or JLL or CBRE, it's in the gossips, right? <laughs> that is where the true information lies. And I think they, they were like, yeah, this guy is quite impressive. He, he probably like understands what, what how to get information firsthand before it's even printed. And so I, I, that's how I got a job, actually. So uh, it wasn't because I was really good at valuation. I think I honestly am not the best in uh, in doing these financial models, but that was really how how I got started and that's incredible you know, into this kind of industry 
And I think that that really speaks to how people hire that a lot of the times it's not necessarily the hard skills that they hire for, but really some of these more soft skills or personality traits. So uh, that 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 you might exhibit, right? Like where you were able to show like resourcefulness um, and that you're willing to learn and really um, uh, able to think outside of the box um, and ask for help. I think actually people tend to underestimate that there's actually a lot of power in um, showcasing some of these uh, soft skills and actually people might actually take a chance on you because of your soft skills. Um, so that's so cool. Um, so I know you mentioned earlier on when we first started today's conversation that you were always really interested in entrepreneurship. So at this point in time, when you were graduating in school, did you ever consider going into entrepreneurship? When I started university, I was doing a public speaking kind of like business and it really didn't take off. So I was a bit discouraged, I think, at a point in time. And I asked myself, like, you know, hey, let's just be a good student, right? So I was a good student, and then I, I became a good internshipper. I don't know how do you actually, you know, put a word to that. And then, of course, once you're a good internshipper, you don't become a good student because you realize that uh, nothing is about grades, right? <laughs> Your GPA doesn't matter. So so you, you just, like, start picking up the real skills. And I think it's when I was there that I realized that um, as much as I like private equity and I like the, the fact that there's flexibility and, and the things you do, you make really high-level decisions, you make really strategic decisions you sort of like understand the big picture and you know it fulfills you intellectually and and in many ways right but then um it was there that I realized that I I don't actually know how to run a business you know if I if, if the CEO were to ask me you know then what should I do in the next 12 months I will give him like this very textbook answer of how you should you know look at this market trend and perhaps look at this competitor what they're doing or if you get some financing, and that's about it. I I don't think it's much much more much useful, right? So that was where I realized that I don't have that skill set in sort of building something, and I couldn't call it my my thing, right? So that was where I really wanted to start something, but I mean it's it's normal. I I I think nobody would then start something. You know, it, it it's it is always this sort of tension where you ask yourself, hey, the money is good stability is there why why are you giving up that opportunity cost right it's always an opportunity cost right like what are you giving up instead of if you're doing entrepreneurship and that that, that that kind of like thought was actually quite hard to swallow and i still remember when i was at bearing my i was in a real estate team my head and the the person who actually built the entire team mark fogel very respected guy in the industry he was one to build ifc in hong kong uh, when he was at aig and he said ben you know like um I'll love you, have you on my team, but I know that you're going to be gone after two years because you're going to be designing something. Then I was like, are you sure? You know, like, are you sure I'm going to design something? And then he's like, yeah, I kind of, you know, can see in your eyes. And then he said like, you know, Ben, you should look at warehouses in China, logistics back then in 2017, 2018. And uh, of course, his predictions are true, right? Uh, they, they made a lot of money there, uh, even in data centers as well. So I, I think I think really that's that, that was uh, the trigger point in some ways. And I started sort of like reading up, looking into things, talking to more people. Uh, but I don't think I don't think that was the, the point, you know, where, where entrepreneurship really came to me. Because it was only until the pandemic during COVID. And then I was really working for a multifamily office called Alvarium. Uh today it's called LT Global. Uh so they merged with Tinnaman. And uh at the point of time I was managing around I think 25 to 30 billion in uh, assets under advisory. 
which is quite big because it's it's really one of the largest multifamily offices in the world. And uh, back then it was it was really one of the gateways to get a Silicon Valley bank, which I mean, uh, in the past year has been history, right? So, but then but then back then Silicon Valley Bank was a big thing. Um, everyone's get to know them. Everyone's put money in them, and uh, I was the person who set up the the second person in Asia Pacific, and. Honestly, I thought that you know this was this was it, right? This is where I'm gonna spend my next uh rest of my career because I'm the second employee in the largest multifamily office in the world. I literally with my boss, uh help them to also do the MES things, uh get licenses, um, set up the office, really get to know what's happening. Um, probably be associate director in like two years, MD in a couple of years. I mean, this this was you, right? <laughs> yeah. So um I th- I think that was that was where it was during COVID that I think things changed. Um, I think what I thought about was really legacy. I was thinking about like, what do I really want to do uh, during this period of time if I were to die tomorrow? So that was, that was where things changed for me. And I realized that, hey, you know, um, I just want to do something, right? And and I'm at a point of time, I was like 26, 27, there's so many things you can possibly do. You don't have to be restricted to a certain kind of like um, mindset. And I think when you're 27, you're just like, you know, I just, if I do it for the next five years, that's so on, right? I, I can always go back to the industry. So really, I, that's where we took the plunge um, mm-hmm. and sort of like really set out to do something. Got it, got it. So how did you land on Kenobi? Yeah, so I was doing mentoring with uh, a good friend of mine. His name is Hafiz. He's among my co-founder as my CEO. And... When we were doing this mentoring thing together, which is supported by SMU, uh, it was the newest concept in the world. Rather not new because the medical industry has been doing it for a long time. But in the other rest of the world, nobody knows anything about mentoring. They're like, you know, is it coaching? Is it like training? But then it's quite different, right? It's mentoring has no agenda. It's about development and so on. And at the start, people didn't believe in it. I still remember starting SMU. I was asking people to come together. They were like, what what's this? You know, is it like uh it just sounds so fluffy, right? It's not a church group, it's not the thing, but then what do you actually do? And I think at a point of time, uh, it eventually clicked when people realized that uh it was about the meaningful conversations you get that gets you to the next stage. Yeah, people realized that, you know, it's not about being transactional. Uh, it's really about trying to build meaningful relationships that, you know, helps you get to a certain stage. Right. And and I think that, that that thing clicked in many people's minds in SMU and, and then our club boomed. Um I think to date we're in the seventh circle and it's been seven years. Uh, time flies. And uh we, we host events with thousands of people now. Yeah, it's called Odyssey. Um you can sign up for it if you want. Yeah, so it's it's amazing, and that's how I met my co-founder. Um we've always wanted to solve this topic of education together, where the main part they wanted to solve with mentoring or whatever the thing is, is what happens in the gap between education and the workplace. And that's where, that cliff is where everyone falls off. Uh, you, you see a lot of students, they they rush, they study so hard, or they don't study at all, and then they get to that cliff, and then they're like, boom, they fall off the cliff, they, they don't know what to do when they're working, they burn out, they, they start to quiet quit, you know, they start to do all these things that you see as... Uh, um, new and uh, nuisances uh, to like those in the boomer generation or Gen X, right? And and that's where I think we wanted to solve that that portion there, and that's where we started Kenobi. We started it really as a sort of tuition for careers, 
And we were making a bit of good money in terms of teaching, investment banking, and consulting, but we realized it's not scalable time for money. So we decided to, you know, look into software. And that's where I roped in my current CTO and co-founder, Josh, who I knew from back when I was in a national service. We were the same bunk. And I think we were just talking to him. We were like, hey, we need a CTO, right? You need someone to join this business. We want to build something tech-related so they can expand to more people. And it's not time for money. So that was where he joined. And we decided and realized that um, as we were looking at the bit of the puzzle, not just in Singapore, um, Indonesians, Vietnamese, Malaysians, they're all coming to us. They're like, Ben, I want to get into banking. I want to get into consulting. I want to do all these other things. And they have a lack of this information. And more than that, we realize the heart of the problem before they even go into it, industry knowledge is a resume. Because they don't actually know how to build a proper resume. And we were thinking of how to actually go about it. And one way to solve it is probably resume workshops and, and so on. But we were thinking of how to systematize it. And that's where we created a resume builder. And the resume builder, we, we I remember launching it on 14 February as we termed your resume bay. Uh, it's like, uh, you don't need a bay for your Valentine's Day. All you need is your resume <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'll get the best job ever because money is the best thing, right? <laughs> who needs who needs love if you have money, right? So I think that was the kind of like a uh, slogan that we were actually going for. Um, it, it, it sort of like hit off quite well. We had quite good traction to start. And then it hit the idea of monetization because previously when you're doing career tuition, you know, it's quite simple. You give time and then you get paid. Well, in this case, Everyone is like, hey, it is just a software, right? I'm not going to like pay. How, how do you value it? You know, how do I pay like $15 to use it for three months or $15 for a month or $5 for a month? You know, how, how, how do you do it? And and if after paying $15, um, then what? I lose that customer. Yeah. So, so I, I think that was, a, that was a huge like thing that we were thinking about. And um, it was then that we realized that one, we needed to fundraise because this then becomes a tech company. And then two is that we needed to find a sustainable business model. So that was that was the thing that we started thinking about. And the first one was slightly easier. I think fundraising back then was a lot easier than now. Um, now it's notoriously hard to actually get money um, because everyone looks at pre-everything <laughs> before you want to actually do something or give you money. Uh, back then, we just got in angel investors who really believed in us. Uh, they said, Ben, you know, at the end of the day, we won't believe in education. We want you, you to do something about it. Um, we're not here to see our money back, but we don't want you to any of spend it. But you know, that's that's the kind of like like relationship they're gonna have. So I think we were really glad we raised the injury round of 250k USD. Um that got us to the whole year in some ways until the end of 2021. And that was where we kind of knew that we needed to build something B2B. But kind of we didn't know exactly what. So we started selling to the Singapore universities, and it was notoriously difficult. Even though we had, we said that, you know, we had all your best students on our website. Everyone was using it. Your valedictorian or salutatorian, everyone was using it. They're like, who are you? You know, like, um, are, are you actually credible? And then there was where we stepped into a bigger picture and realized that there were so many various systems that we were competing against. And in Singapore, especially where Singapore is spoiled for choice. That's why it's really hard to operate in Singapore because Singapore gets the cream of the crop. Everything that anyone uses in Singapore is the best. So if they were to use it and think about using a Singapore system, they wouldn't give you face. They wouldn't like, oh yeah, you know, you're Singaporean, I, I, I'm going to use the system. Uh, they're more like, 
how do you compare against the German system, against the UK system, the US system, Australia system, the China system? If you're doing better than them, yes. And you're doing better than them, plus the price, then I'll give it to you. So it was notoriously difficult to even like get a first, second conversation. Most of them just thought that we had nothing. What, which in fact, what exactly, we actually had nothing. What exactly yeah. was the service that you were selling to the universities? Uh, we were trying to sell them this resume builder mm, uh, for okay. the students. Got it, yeah, got and, it. And that was where... um. Yeah, we realized it's not just resume, but it's it's became more than that. Yeah, and I'll get to that uh just now, just just in a bit. Um, and that was where we realized that the first lesson we needed to go to Indonesia, because one is that in Indonesia is more relationship based, uh, rather than whether this thing can perform to its best ability first before procuring it. Yeah, so so we had like five ten clients. We did it in twenty twenty two, start twenty twenty two. Um, I still remember. Us in end of 2021, uh, we spent three months in Indonesia during the lockdowns, and uh, there was practically nothing. There was the EQI air quality index in Jakarta was great. There were there were no cars on the road. I I thought that you know Jakarta was an amazing city because there were no cars on the road. Of course, now if you go there, it's like uh, you know get stuck in traffic for <laughs> an hour and a half. Yeah, so it was it was there that we that we started doing it. Um, everyone thought it was real crazy, right? Because nobody was in Indonesia at the point. All the Singaporeans were at home, and then all the Singaporeans there thought we were crazy because they were like they were all they all didn't want to get out of the house. They were all like, uh, you know, there's COVID here. What are you doing? You know, uh, you should be wearing a mask. You are irresponsible for getting out of your house. So we we had to really change the the conventions and and cause people to really like meet us, and especially so when the universities across Indonesia are not exactly the most welcoming. Um, they're more, they're more like uh, universities in general are not welcoming in general, right? But then, coupled there with a language barrier, I don't speak Bahasa at the start. You know, my microphone is Malay, but Bahasa Melayu is fifty percent different from Bahasa Indonesia. So, uh, we we really like uh, hustled a lot. We finally got a first client. It was a IPMI Business School, one of the top MBA schools in Indonesia. They paid us grand total of two thousand dollars. I still remember, and uh, that was where we started the business and started getting more clients. Yeah, so we got 10 eventually and then we came back uh, to Singapore and we were like, hey, you know, this is our track record in 10 universities. And then people started taking notice. I, I think the main part about that was because a lot of entrepreneurs went to Indonesia and died and we didn't. So that, that got a lot of people interested in us because the government especially, they were like, how do you guys survive? You know, uh, like... Uh, how do you even make a sale, right? Like, like the Singaporeans who go to Indonesia, they just get snubbed. They, are, they just get some niceties, get some musty goreng from them and get some lunch and dinner and then they're asked to go home, right? So, so like, uh, it was it was quite interesting where people started taking notice of us because of that. So, the Enterprise Singapore started supporting us. Uh, IMD started knocking on doors and saying, like, you know, let's give grants to you to build your systems. And then there was where um, we had, our first client, James Cook University in Singapore, buy our resume builder. And then we had our second, which is uh, Singapore Institute of Management, really come on board. And they have been our greatest supporter since then. They're the first to buy our full system um, and uh, very good supporter of us. So I think I think that really kicked the ball rolling here in Singapore mm -hmm. with, with these things. Wow, that's incredible and speaks to your grit and uh, hustle for really going out there, being on the ground and signing those clients and eventually uh, coming back to Singapore and showing some sort of track record so that they would uh, be able to sign on. What mm. I really wanted to understand is why did you decide you had to go into that B2B route? What I realized in the B2C market is this, especially in education, is that um, we have to understand the psyche of the, of the people we're working with. 
for example, let's say if you're talking about K to twelve, uh, it's really pretty much driven by parents. Yeah, parents are so scared their kids are not going to succeed. They spend as much money as they can to make sure the kids succeed. But when it reaches the university angle, they start realizing that you know the the student your, your kids going to think of themselves, and you see that even in how the how the the payments and fees look like. The fees for international preschool and international school are much higher than the fees for international university. Unless Is you're talking true? about a Stanford or like uh, any other thing. But mm. the majority of it, uh, international school, international mm. high school doing A-levels, IGCSE or even IB is much higher. And mm. that was where the bulk of the money went to for B2C. So we, we kind of knew that we, we couldn't really compete in that space just based on that metric alone. So we had to go B2B. So as and, in as in that people yeah. were not going to be willing to spend money because um, they were no longer, because they had to be the one making the payment themselves yes. rather than parents. Yes. And parents are much more likely to spend on their child in the early days of um, the their childhood to set them up for success versus later on when they feel like, actually, your fate is kind of already set. What's the point yes. of me investing more in you at this point in time? Yes, correct. Yeah, totally spot on. <laughs> got it, yeah. got it. Okay. So then I guess like the the spending power was a lot lower from from mm. that perspective. And that's why you guys decided to pivot away from B to C. I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know about my career coaching program that's designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing it in your dream career. So if you're feeling unfulfilled, Despite having that perfect, prestigious, high-paying job, or if you're someone who's great at chasing and acing other people's dreams but have no idea what your own dreams and goals are, well, today you're in luck. I'm sharing my three-step framework to help you find your passion and get career clarity. If that sounds like something you would want, check out today's show notes to download the free guide now. Um, Okay, so you figured out like from... um, be, from a business model perspective, B2C was not going to lead you um, very far. And yeah. so you decided to pivot into B2B instead. And mm-hmm. so at that point in time, the B2B idea was really the resume builder. Yes. And so that's what you guys were pushing hard on, which is actually quite a departure from helping people. I mean, it, not such a dramatic departure, but yeah. a bit of a departure from you know what you guys originally intended, which was helping people get into... Um, uh, you know, finance, consulting, et cetera. Yes, correct. It's it's quite a departure, I must say. And but so, I think uh, it, it's it's about survival, right? I mean, you help the whole quadrant and and I guess like uh, whoever is in there wants to buy banking, you know, they, they probably will find a way there. And at that point in time, you guys were, you and your co-founder was working on this full-time, right? Yes. And you guys had fundraised the angel round at this point. Yes, Got it. Okay. And so was it tough to make this decision to pivot? Um, Given that it's probably, you know, like a business hmm. that is revenue generating at that point, or at least you were bringing in money at that point, some money at that point, right? And you had some people investing. And so to completely shift gears into a brand new product, was that a difficult decision? I think within the co-founders, we just make a decision to make things on data. So, um, and based on trends. So I think what's most important is making sure that we actually have a client that does it. So we slowly started realizing that the BUC angle was a lot of effort. 
and uh, it was it wasn't getting us to the results that we wanted to get. And what so was we, that we ideal made... for you guys? Like when you say it didn't give you the results you wanted, because technically your yes. acquisition cost was low. You were getting customers. So, what what was yeah. the goal? I guess the yeah. metric our, that so you were our measuring. Free users were like like booming like mad, mm. while our paid users were not increasing much. Mm, so the okay. translation between free to paid was quite difficult and um, mm-hmm. you know we, we we did several things right one was to restrict certain content etc etc we sort of did and then of course we, we we people started complaining on tiktok and then we gave it back to them yeah, and then we started realizing that it was it was pretty hard to really charge mm-hmm. for these things mm-hmm. and even if we did uh you know it's okay like like to give you a perspective right now uh did even know even though right now like almost Every person in Indonesia who is a graduate of a renowned university uses our resume builder for free. And we don't need any more marketing in Indonesia. Like uh, our payments from B2C, there are still some people who do it because they don't come from certain universities that purchase us. Still very low. Mm-hmm. So we're quite glad we didn't go that route. Mm, okay because people are just too accustomed to free yes. uh, receiving the content for free or receiving the service for free yes. and so it was just too hard to be able to monetize from from that front which is why you guys decided to pivot into b2b instead yes correct got it got it but okay cool so so then you went into the b2b route how did you guys decide on pricing because i think a mm. lot of the times that's usually the biggest questions people have when they first go into businesses how much should I charge? And so with your course, I guess you started off with free and I assume you tried different price points as well at mm. that point. Um, but also with the B2B business, how did you decide how much you would be charging these these, these universities? Yeah, so I think I think pricing is something which is actually very simple to understand. Um, people buy things based on pricing, quality and relationship. Three things. Pricing itself uh, is important, but it's not the most important. Uh, quality is sometimes the, the thing that matters, but in some situations, relationship is the thing that matters the most. Um, of course, all three must must come in together, right? The pricing cannot be like ridiculously expensive. But pricing itself is not difficult because um, you kind of know what your competitors are charging them. You can you can find them on GBIS or you can find them on a tender board. Uh, so it's it's all it's all very clear and plain for people to see. And even if they don't, um, the people themselves sometimes will tell you. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's up to you to believe whether what they're saying is real because they they may tell you a different number, right? But after a while, you kind of know what's the pricing. And the second, then after you establish a pricing, which is in a range, is going to quality. Is to say that like, why are you different from that competitor of yours? And usually, when someone approaches you, and this is what I mean by enterprise, this is very enterprise sales. Um, when these universities approach you and say, I want to see a demo, um, more or less they don't do it for fun because uh, some of them have have perhaps a KPI to meet by meeting new people, but most of them don't. Uh, they don't have that KPI. You know, they can do whatever they want. If they want to meet you, they want to meet you. They want to go home and, and watch Netflix, they can just do it, right? So like, uh, it, it's really because they, 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 are one, they have pain points that they want to have solved. And that's where the quality thing comes inside. And that's where we, we try to get rep most of these deals. Um, we usually go to these deals and we ask them like, what exactly do you not like about your current system? And then they'll tell you A, B, C, and D, and E, and F, and so on and so forth. And 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 then that's where you know that's that's where you you realize that uh that that's the kind of thing that um 
you know you need to kind of like get from them yeah so so really i think i think that is a key factor really not the pricing because mm-hmm. the pricing thing comes at the end where after they realize that you know this fits my needs as a user and this fits my justification for changing mm-hmm. then i look at the price of course the price is too high you know i i cannot justify it but the price is about the same or maybe slightly lower then i can actually look at it mm-hmm. and then the the third one is on the relationship because and you know, they all of us are human, right? Um, you know, this this university staff is is not this company, right? Uh, even if he does or get this system or doesn't get this system, he's not gonna get an increment of salary. Nobody's gonna give him a pat on his shoulder and say, like, you know, well done, you're great, you're great, this uh <laughs> thing on earth. Yeah, but you know, they what they're thinking about is really just uh, you know, can I can I just like work with this person well? Um, is it someone that is it a partner that I can work with? Uh if if I'm in trouble, will they save me? Or would they just throw me under the bus and ask me to pay more money, right? So I think I think all these factors of consideration really came into play. Uh, they make pricing a, a much smaller component than it really is. Interesting. I think that's very, very fascinating. So on the side of the product, when you went to have these conversations with people, did you have the product all built out already or you just had an MVP going? When we first sold our products, honestly, we had nothing. Uh, mm. we went there and and honestly I think that this even now I don't show my product so I'm quite glad that we didn't build the product first until listening to them because what people need is not to see the features in the product they don't want to see the pudding you know nobody buys like let's say you want to buy anything in the world and I, I learned this when I was selling bonsai plants for the Japanese private equity <laughs> like people don't care about that bonsai they care about the story they want to know where this bonsai is from. You know, what's the history of the bonsai? Does this bonsai re- re- resonate with me? Does this bonsai they're talking about, does it, is it well-liked by other people? Yeah, and, and, if, and if all these things come into play, they're like, okay, you know, let, let's look at this bonsai now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they don't, nobody, if you show them the bonsai at the start, they tell them, okay, this bonsai has this amount of leaves and, and so on and so forth. You know, this bonsai, uh, you trim this bonsai, it does this and, and it, it grooms during winter or something like that. You know, they're like, Okay, and then there's the end of the conversation, right? There's no story. So I, I think I think really the, the trick is not to really show the MPP or anything at the start. It's really just having a conversation. Mm-hmm. But of course, you must have that, that thing. Uh, and that comes from testimonials, which I think which I think is extremely important as well. So testimonials coming from after they start using your product, right? Yes. Got it. So I think in the early days when you were just, I guess, selling the story to them, what was that story? Any tips around storytelling? Because I think that's usually where people get tripped up on. I think storytelling is is quite simple. Um, it's just being yourself. Yeah, really, there's, there's no long and short to it. Um, I think what a lot of people get wrong is that they start to open slides. And then when you open slides, there's nothing wrong with opening slides. But when you open slides, it forces everyone to go to that thing. And... It's either it's boring or it's not, right? <laughs> so if it's boring, people will just switch off and they won't tell you. They won't tell you that it's boring, right? So uh, that, that's the issue. But when you when you actually have a conversation, you start to get to know the person. You, they, the person starts to talk more. And and I think that's important, especially so in the first conversation. And I tell this to anyone who does sales in my company. I say that you talk 20% of the time, maximum. 80% of the time is a person talking. Because you need to get the person to tell you more things. Yeah, so if they don't tell you more things, you don't know anything about them. And then you left the conversation with nothing, right? 
so I, I think that was that was very important for us to really try to understand what the needs of our customers are. Because at the end of the day, people just want to be heard, you know? They want to complain about the day, they want to complain about the boss, they want to complain about the features, they want to complain about like the things that they don't like, right? And they want someone to hear them. Yeah, they, they, that's all that people want, actually. And once they get off their chest, they're like, oh yeah, you know, you're, you're like the best friend in the world because you actually listen to me. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's what a lot of people fail to realize, especially so in the tech business. It's not really about the tech. Mm-hmm. But how do you get your foot in the door? Uh, getting a foot in the door is an interesting one. So uh, there are a few ways. Um, one is getting the first conversation is definitely the, the hardest, right? Because, uh, and and, the, and I would say the best way to get the first foot in the door is to get someone to recommend you inside. And I would say the best people recommended us actually are not in education. Yeah, they know nothing about this industry. They're like, oh yeah, my friend is working here. My friend is working here. You want to talk to him. And then like, after you talk, they're like, there is no agenda, right? Because I, and I go there and I tell them that like, you know, I am just having a coffee with you. Um, I'm not expecting you to again, like after this thing, you know, there are three steps. Firstly, you can tell your, your colleagues about me. Second is that we should have the next meeting, you know, things like that. Right. So, so it's really just uh, no agenda or well, in a way that I, I, I mean, there's agenda, but there's still no agenda, right? Like, you know, if, if you don't give me it, it's fine. And then it goes back to the to the first uh thing that I talked about, which is, you know, um to start your day of love, right? If if you won't you won't have the feeling that um you're being taken advantage of. So you just have that and 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 gradually I tell them that like, hey, you know, I, I just want to make acquaintance. That's it. If if I just want to get to know you, get to know what you do. Um, and I'll be very transparent with you. Of course, I have an agenda. My agenda today is to really understand like a bit more of what you do. Uh, and that's enough. That's enough for me, right? I, I don't need to know more. You don't need to do anything else. And and like, uh, I mean, just want to get to know as a person. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you don't meet me after this, it's fine. You <laughs> know, it's really okay. So I, I think I think having that that perspective really changes uh, several things, and it causes people to be a bit more relational, and people start to actually put more on the table because they realize that you know, you're not here to get something out of them. I think the analogy I have here is that you're on the same side of the table rather than across the table selling to them. Like you're both working together to try to come up with a solution together. And so I think that approach is um, usually a lot more well-received than you trying to push a product and they're just like, okay, all right. (laughs) Like you're in this together. And you want to um you want to reach a solution where it's a win-win solution for both of you. Rather mm-hmm. than a lot of times I feel like when people are being sold to, they feel like, oh, I'm the sucker who got sold to and the other person won, uh, that uh the person was, you know, selling me the product won. Um, and I think that that's a really nice way of of framing how to sell uh to um to someone and and yeah. and and the power of relationships. Um so I think that that's really Really awesome. So actually, I, I remember what the question was I wanted to ask you. Okay. In the yes. B2B sales cycle, how yes. long would you suggest or how long do you think it normally takes to close a B2B sale? Yeah. Um, if you talk about company, it's much shorter, like probably a six to 12 months. If it's a university, you can go above 12 months. Mm, okay. But the university is very sticky because they don't, they don't really switch off from the system, right? So Let's say if I am in a normal company and I decide to not use the system, I will just get rid of it the next day. Or like, you know, that's it. All right. CFO asked me to cut the cut. But in, in a university, if you are a core critical mission, critical system, it's hard to it's just to cut it because the data of the students are on it. 
where are you going to put the data from, right? <laughs> so mm. uh, it's 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 very hard for them to really justify to switch. Mm. Switching cost is really high. And mm. that impacts upon the, the starting as well. But the, the good thing is that we are switching people away from systems that are like 20 years old. Yeah, so if we get it in some ways, you know, we probably have another 20 years before we get disrupted, right? <laughs> yeah, so mm. yeah, my disruption cycle might get faster, but I, I doubt so because... Universities never change. Yeah. The, the mindset of, of universities are still very much traditional. Mm-hmm. In Hong Kong, the university is starting to just use the cloud. Can you imagine? You know, mm-hmm. like cloud has been around since 2010. Yeah. 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 That's crazy. And so how did you stick it out during that period of time, given the long sales cycle? Because as a startup, I think running a B2B startup that's probably the hardest thing yeah. is you see the money start to dwindle from yes, your investors and you know the sales cycle is going to take long. So how did you guys do it? Do it, yeah. So Indonesia was our, our way to dwindle our sales cycle because Indonesia doesn't need 12 months or 14 months. Mm. Indonesia is much shorter. It could be three months, four months. Mm. Fastest okay. was a month. Okay, okay. Yeah, and it's so much smaller amounts. Yeah, but it, it does, it does, yeah, we still make around 20, 30% of our revenues from Indonesia. So mm. that's, that's still, that's still quite a bit. Mm, got it. Got it. Cool. Um, So I guess any advice for people who are looking to either start their own company or more specifically, maybe start a B2B SaaS company that you wish you knew before you got started? I would say uh, B2B SaaS is very much, um, very much so on relationships. So the good thing about my industry is that people don't switch. The people is in a job for 15 years. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> so, so you build that relationship. Yeah, yeah so you build a relationship. And, <laughs> and sometimes, you know, like they switch from university, but to another university and then you get a new client. Right? So that's it. Right? But it's very different from the normal corporate sales because people switch really fast. And, you know, you, have, you need to make so many relationships. It's, it's, it's much harder, I think. Um, so I would say that really for enterprise sales, the most important thing is really about relationships. Mm-hmm. If you have a good reputation, bring people towards you. And I think the best people who do enterprise sales build communities. They're really good at building communities. Mm-hmm. For me, my community is a, is a watch club, right? It's from my watch club that I get a lot of high-ranking people that actually introduce me to the other high-ranking people who get me like the deals. Yeah, there, there's no like it's really serendipitous, but there's there's something to it, right? Because like one leads to another, and it might take five of them, but then eventually the the reputation is high because they are like, hey, you know, just recommended by these group of people. You know, you better look into it, right? If you don't look into it, like you know, I guess uh, you might not be in the position that's cool anymore. <laughs> so, so you probably need to look into it, right? So, I, I think I think there's this uh there's this the community building is especially important, um. And I think some people on LinkedIn have done really well. There are a few of them I kind of know who do like for like um data analytics companies. They're really good at like um creating posts, LinkedIn posts. They have their own brand. Uh, naturally, people flock to them when they think of the the pain point. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think the communities part solves the main thing you're asking, right? Which is how do I shorten the sales cycle? It really, in enterprise sales, you really cannot because you cannot force a person to buy. Because it's not, it's, it's more, it's four or five stakeholders, right? Even if one person really wants to buy, you can't force everyone to buy. You really have to ask them to come to you. And um, 
in that part, you need to always be at the forefront of their minds. The first, they must be thinking like, you know, I have this issue. Who's the first person that comes to mind? The first person must be you. That's the key to winning the sales. So building up that personal brand, your reputation, yeah. and leveraging community. And I think it's so cool that the community you leverage has nothing to do whatsoever with like education or careers, et cetera. Like it's about watches and luxury watches. And you've been able yeah. to leverage that um, community there to help you in building Kenobi. I think that that's really cool. Like you don't necessarily need to just focus on getting people in the industry to connect you to people mm. in the industry. It could really be from anywhere in your life. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so one final, I guess, like one last category of questions, which is really yes. around fundraising. fundraising. So I know that yes. you went through an angel round of invest, um, of 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 investing, and also you went and raised um a million dollars after that, um, yes. as well, right? So, kind of walk us through what that fundraising process was like, and any tips around a successful fundraise. Well, fundraising is. It's more of an art than a science to me, in my opinion. Um, my reasoning is because I'm not a YC-backed startup. Right. Uh, a lot of advice out there that people give is to startups that are Sequoia-backed and YC-backed. It's a lot easier for them, right? It's a lot easier to just uh, you know go through the list and then send out many things and then have many meetings. I think, I think the key to fundraising and a lot of things for what we do is really to establish key relationships and to us why are they doing it, right? Um, my business itself in education says is not a sexy business. It's not a business where people come inside and they're like, you know, I'm going to make a ton of money off this, right? But um, what we have is to really find investors who say that I want to make sure that I have a return, but at the same time, I want to really make a difference. I mean, if people want to make money, they can. there's this many, many ways to make money in this world. Right, they don't have to invest in an education sales business, right? So I, I think I think uh, finding that right sort of investors is extremely extremely important, um, and especially so you know doing private equity and you see the amount of like uh, returns that other people get, right? Like uh, there are many ways to make money, right? And as well, there are many other things that could make you a lot of money. Why do this? So I think I think finding the right sort of investors is important. The second is that really in the fundraising process, it's it's not about um, a lot of people just go into the thing and then they think that, you know, as a startup, you are the one who needs to beg, right? I think I think that's not the case. Um, the fundraising is a bit like, you know, uh, I guess finding a partner or something like that, right? So it's it's really about finding someone who's on your terms, right? I think that's that's uh, that's the important bit. And a lot of startups forget that. They, they always go into it and say that, yeah, you know, I just want a term sheet. You know, and then they take the term sheets and then they start competing with each other and so on. Right? I mean, that's one way you can do it, right? That's one way that a lot of the YC-backed and square startups do it. Because, I mean, that's it's just it's just how how the market is for them. But for most startups, they can't do that, right? Because they don't have the luxury or they don't have the opportunity. Um, and instead, what, what can be done is really to have the conversation and, and do it like the sales thing, which is to say that, you know, before I want to, you know, get into something with you, I want to be friends. I want to actually know whether I like you, right? And I told it to every VC I meet. I told that, and I told them that, hey, I just want to know whether you're someone I can trust. Are you going to, you know, when we are doing doing badly, are you going to throw us off? You're not going to help us at all? Or are you going to like honor your word? 
I think that's very important as a as as a relationship with the VC, and that changes things because the VC then realizes that, hey, you know, you need the money, right? But then at the end of the day, the the relationship is different, and with this person, I respect the person. I I think this person knows what they're doing, so I think I think that's that's the approach that I I take usually to a lot of these conversations. And of course, ninety five percent of them will not end up well, right? <laughs> because uh, they they are like you know you need money and you are asking for these terms and conditions, and I'm like, well, you know, it's a great way to find out that you're not the right person for me, right? <laughs> yeah, so it's it, it to me that's that's how I I really kind of like uh, narrow it down a lot more, mm-hmm. and you just get partners who are a bit more invested in what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I like that. I think having that sort of abundance mindset rather than scarcity mindset and. Um, not really being the beggar and really treating this as a equal relationship and a partnership because it really is. Um, you're not here just to beg for money. And um, um, I think that then that reflects in the quality of the the relationship that comes out of this uh, yes. as well. So how do you go about finding these people to begin with? Like I finding think, angel yeah, investors, yeah. how do you go about finding them? Angel investors are slightly easier in a way that, um, I mean, being the luxury watch club that helps. <laughs> Yeah, you, you get to know a bit more people and network is wider. Uh, these angel investors or these people then will introduce you to other rich people or other people who run funds or other people who run VC funds. Um, that's that's how I think the best way it works. And that's why the watches thing makes sense because I have something other to, to talk to the VC other than, you know, my company, right? Like if anything, they they just get someone who can give them advice about watches. Because I, I know a lot of watches, right? I can, I can easily tell them like, you know, uh, what is nice, what's new to market, like what should you buy, etc. I mean, it's not financial advice, but it's like, it's interesting. And I think that that makes people want to talk to you. Um, but I think one thing that people um, sort of don't realize in the VC world is that not all VCs are, are the same. Uh, people always think that, you know, they have the best idea, you know, and then the VC should listen to me. But sometimes this VC doesn't actually know what they're doing, you know, and they, and, and they will pretend to know, but actually they don't know and, and I don't fault them for it because, they're just not interested in it, right? Like if you ask me today anything about My Little Pony or, you know, like uh, something that I have absolutely no interest in, I would be like, yeah, sure, you know, like I'm just doing my duty, I'm listening to you and so on and so forth. But I really have no interest in it. I'm just going to go to you and say to like, I rejected you because of A, B and C and D and, and it's not because I don't like My Little Pony, right? <laughs> yeah, so oh, I know nothing about My Little Pony. I do nothing about it. So no VC is going to say that. I actually know nothing about your industry. I That's why you're not going to invest. So that is one thing that a lot of startups, they, they feel to realize. And over time, that's where the conversation matters because it's in the conversation that that you find the VCs that sort of understand you a lot better. Because I, I like to think of it this way. If the VC is just asking me to make like a very um, sort of like pity statements and like uh, very smart connotations and nice sounding code words. And if I don't use them, then I sound unexciting. I'm like, you know, this person is not the one for me because when I'm not exciting, they will throw me aside. Yeah, and, and that's one one thing that I advise to a lot of founders to do because, you know, it's not about how exciting and, and how uh, interesting your, your startup idea is and not how, how excited you sound when you pitch, right? If the if the VC actually, after listening to your idea, no matter how boring that, that the, how boring it sound, understands what you're actually doing, then the person is the right one for you. Because the person doesn't effort to actually understand what you're trying to do. Right. And and that's the best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I like to think of it that way. Yeah, makes sense. And so wrapping up, one final question uh for you that I ask every single one of my guests is 
in the Western world, usually people say, you know, follow your dreams and the money will come. Whereas in uh, more Asian contexts, a lot of people tend to have the view that you should pick something that's practical, something that's safe for your career, something that you know makes money and keep what you love to do on this side. So now that you've kind of had one foot in each door where you know you took the practical route, went the corporate route and did private equity, and now you've also done the other side, which is entrepreneurship and following and building something that you feel very passionate about. What is your view on this statement? I think, I mean, just look at Asian entrepreneurs. They never ever follow what, what, what this statement is. Asian entrepreneurs practically do everything, right? Uh, you see, you look at the conglomerates, like a Robert Kwok, like a CDL, look at the Indonesian conglomerates, the Thai conglomerates. They don't just stick to one thing, right? <laughs> they, do, they do like a couple of things all at once. And even when they were young, when they were starting out, they just did a couple of things all at once. And I, I think... I think that's where um we have to have the mindset. Um, like for me when I started when I did Kenobi, uh, I'm not in it because I know that this business does 20x. Right. It is not that's not what I'm doing Kenobi for. Uh in fact, I have not really shared this with anyone on a public area or podcast, but actually what I'm doing Kenobi is because I get to really know the government officials very well. Yeah, I, I mean like literally quite well because you're solving an important part of everyone's ecosystem which is education to work that's literally like 30 percent of the voters in every country right uh, that's important to any any government or any person that wants to be in charge of a country so i think i think that's that's the reason why i'm actually doing this um i think it gives me a lot of context to people that i probably would never get if i were doing private equity Right, they will just see you as a money man, right? They will see you as like this guy who just wants to make money. He doesn't want to do any society, you know. It's about it, like you know, not interesting as a person, right? So I think, I think that's that's why I usually do Kenobi, um, and it's for a bigger goal, right? Um, so I think I think really that's that's that is something that a lot of people they they don't kind of see. Um, my belief is this is that, and I've talked to many of these like older guys in the business and that, that's how I came to the realization that a lot of them are selling out the private equity because I, I know a lot of these old people they're like 70, 80 years old uh, suffering from like various illnesses a lot of them cannot travel you know just they just they just like when they talk to you they share with you the ideas they share with you what you know they would what they would be doing if they were in your shoes and they're like 30 years old like you right now and they'll be like you know, Ben, I would actually do this, I'll do this and do this. These are the things that I'll do. None of them actually say that, you know, hey, I'm just going to find a stable job and, and uh, just going to find something that gives you cash flow, right? Because I think everyone also goes back to the understanding that uh, if you're an entrepreneur and, and if you have that thing inside your blood, you, you can never really go back to the system. Because it doesn't, you, you, you're made wired differently from everyone else here. You, you, don't need, you don't need that luxuries in life. And and after I meet some of these really rich people, I drink like a uh, fish soup with them at a uh, at like a uh, food republic, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, literally. <laughs> and then the guy doesn't he dresses like uh, you know the guy is worth like a uh, half a billion dollars or something like that, but you know he, he doesn't like wear luxuries. Mm. Um, he tells you that I can't eat much nowadays because of like aneurysm. You know, I I just want to eat my fish soup, right? I just want to do my things. That's it. Like you know this. The, the, and you start realizing that uh, that 
that end of the day, like uh, what are you really comfortable with? Yeah. Because after you talk to a lot of these older people, um, you slowly start realizing that that they would they never wish that they were sitting in their Maybach or like, you know, any other day or like the Ferrari or Lamborghini. And you realize all of them sold off all their sports cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're 70 years old, they sold off their sports cars. They're driving like a Lexus Maximum or Jazz. And you know, they they just like they just want to be healthy again and, and mm-hmm. it's just a very different state of life. So I, I think after after talking to a lot of these people, you realize that um, you know, it's it's sometimes the experiences that matter. Yeah, and and if if I ever go through that stage and I do all these things and I at the 70 years old and I go back to eating fish soup, you know, <laughs> like you'll like know really, you've made it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's also more important that like you it's something which you know, everyone can do it, right? Yeah, it just it just goes to show that, you know, um you don't actually need that much money. Yeah. And maybe it's really all about the simple pleasures of life. Yeah. And actually, we overcomplicate life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, even when you get to the pinnacle of life, you just want the simple pleasures and everybody's looking for the same health, like to be healthy and, and happy in their life. Yes, correct. Yeah. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Ben, for your time today. It's been so much fun getting to know you and getting to know Kenobi. Uh, thank you for sharing so much about your stories and your journey with us and um, for spending time with us on the podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you as well. And thank you for having me. And there you have it, my conversation with Ben. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, internships are a great way to test drive your career while you're still in school. Halfway through his law degree, Ben embarked on an internship and realized that the work that he was doing was not what he expected. This was what actually led him to drop out of law school and instead to focus on his interest and passion in business. Two, sometimes doing the crazy thing might actually be the right thing to do. Ben and his team pivoted into the Indonesian market when they realized that Singapore was not the right market for their business. Everyone around them thought they were crazy because nobody was traveling to Indonesia during the pandemic. And it was rare that a Singapore business could find a client in Indonesia. But Ben and his team managed to get their first 10 clients, built their reputation before returning to Singapore with a proven track record, which made it so much easier for him to then sell to Singapore companies. Number three, in a B2B business, when companies are looking to buy a product or a service, they often make their decisions based on three things, pricing, quality, and the relationship. Ben believes that all three of them must come together, but in some situations, the most important characteristic is actually relationships. Four, when pitching your product or service, starting with the story is oftentimes better than starting with the product. If the story resonates with them, they'll want to know more about the product and be more inclined to purchase it. Five, Another sales tip is to be an active listener. Ben instructed his team to only speak 20% of the time and let the client speak 80% of the time. This allows you to learn more about the client and what their needs are and tailor your story and your pitch specifically to that client, making it much easier for you to close. Six, 
don't underestimate where you can find your new clients. A lot of Ben's clients initially were recommended by people from his watch club, a totally different industry. And it often starts off with just getting to know them and not really selling any product in the first meeting. And that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control All Career. If you liked this episode, I'd so appreciate it if you could leave me a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And share this episode with a friend who maybe isn't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you guys back here in a couple of weeks. Thank you.